this morning as we consider these 26 verses of Scripture. I want to ask you to listen quickly. I'm going to speak a bit quickly. As we consider the subject of our assurance which comes by distinction and affection. Distinction and affection. We are distinguished by what? By the fact that we are children of God. And this affection, verse 11 and following of chapter 3, speaks of our, our love for the brothers and sisters that we have because of our faith in God. You follow that? We've been adopted by the Father into His family. We've been called His children. And by being called the children of God, we've inherited a family, like it or not. And if we're in God's family, there's some responsibilities that we have with respect to the family. So first, to assure our hearts before God, we must live as the children of God. We must live as the children of God. To ensure God's assurance that we are His children, we must live as the children of God. And secondly, we must love the children of God. In verses 28 through 10, John elaborates on the differences between the children of God and the children of the devil. Scott Kellum tells us five times John mentions the word children or children of God. Three times he calls the church those who are born of God. The word born is written in a way, we've talked about it many times, that, that it's irreversible. It's a, a once for all kind of activity. God births us into his kingdom. He makes us his child. And just like natural birth, once you're born, you can't be unborn. That, that would not be pleasant, I don't think. Uh, but once you're born... You're born into the kingdom. You're born again. You're born from above. You're born of the Spirit. We've received, according to Martin Lloyd-Jones, something of the very nature of life and God himself. There's an organic union that is represented here. It's not just uh, the birth certificate. It's not just the external legalities of birth. There's something internal that has happened in us. John tells us in verse 9, the very seed of God is abiding within us. The same Holy Spirit who conceived in Mary's womb the Savior of the world indwells us and conceives within us a new heart and makes us God's own children. And all of this is juxtaposed with references to the world, the world system, and to one who practices sin, which is lawlessness, and to children of the devil. The point that John is making in verses 28 of chapter 2 through 10 of chapter 3 is this. If you've really gotten it, if God's really done something in your life, you will understand that you have been distinguished as a child of God. You've been set apart from the world as something totally different. One who's been born again and made a child of God. And if it's true that you have a birth that is different from that of the world, it is also true that you will have a perspective and a life which is different from the world. Here's John's point in a nutshell. Assurance of belonging to God belongs to those who live like they belong to God. Pretty simple, right? Assurance of belonging to God belongs to those who live like they belong to God. Well, what... What does God live like? What does God the Father delight in? What is his special pleasure? What is his treasure? Well, like their father, the children of God delight in the things that the father delights in. And the father, the scriptures tell us, delights in his everlasting son. 
So I want you to get this because there's some of these texts, some of these scriptures are pretty challenging. The one who has him does not sin. Well, what does that mean? Because I woke up yesterday and I found that I was still a sinner. And yet John says that I didn't sin. Well, there's a particular sin that John's talking about. And the particular sin that he's talking about is the sin of not glorying in and relishing and leaning on and depending wholly on Christ, the one who is Christ the righteous, we learned back in 1 John chapter 2. The sons and the daughters of God, the Father, are divinely distinguished by their adoration of God the Son. You follow that? We are divinely distinguished by the adoration and affection and dependence we have on Christ alone. You know, when Stacy and I were, years ago, struggling a bit with this whole thing called childbearing and unable to conceive a child we were back and forth to the doctor over and over and over again and uh, many prayers and many sleepless nights and and much despair and desperation but then in a moment suddenly there was a positive pregnancy test and we couldn't believe it I couldn't believe it and um, we went off to the doctor and the doctor was like, we can't believe it. And we were like, yeah, we can't either. The doctor, by the way, had said it was going to be virtually impossible for us to have a child. And 45 days later, we were pregnant after all this stuff. And it was incredible. Well, a few weeks later, we're, Elizabeth is there on the ultrasound. I think it's ultrasound. Is that right? Or sonogram, whatever it is, the picture. And, and, and I'm, just, I'm just standing there and I can't believe it. And I, I'm looking in and there's my daughter's face on the screen and I see the jawline and it it I am telling you it is a miniature Stacy <laughs> and, I, and I, I I had one thought that came to my mind and heart immediately thank you Jesus <laughs> that she's gonna look like her mom and not like her dad now the truth is this she was also clapping her hands in there and her feet were going like crazy <clears throat> So on the inside, she's quite frankly a bit more like her dad than her mom, and she's got a little bit of the crazy too. But the reality is that, that children got the stuff of their parents on the inside. It's not just the official document. There's something going on in the inside of them as well. And it manifests itself in the way that they look and the way that they live. And this is true for those who belong to God as his children. We begin to live like God. We begin to take delight in being his child which is our first point under living out what it means to be a child of God we take delight in being a child of the father look at verse one the word there is see or behold and it's a command and John interrupts the flow of his argument after telling us we know that the children of God are going to behave like the children of God they're going to perform righteousness it's like he says stop the presses for a minute did you see what I just said? I just said you've been made a child of God. See it. Look at it. Clearly discern it. Consider it. Look intently at it. God himself has chosen you to be his child. Worship the Father. Worship the King. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7 verse 11 if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will your father who is in heaven 
Give what is good to those who ask him. And what has the Father given us? He's given us his son. He's given us his very self. It's not the things that he's given us. He's given us God. And he's given us God and a chance to abide in Christ and to have God on the inside as we walk with him. Here's the truth of scripture. Here's the truth of the gospel. I was Jacob, but now I'm Israel. I was Simon, but now I'm Peter. I was Daniel, son of Satan, but now I am Daniel, child of God. The, the world does not know us because of this transformation that has happened in our life. It doesn't know our Father. This is why Scripture calls us aliens and strangers and sojourners and pilgrims. It doesn't know the basis of our life. Notice that we're called pilgrims, not people on a journey. I'm not trying to pick on anybody here, but it's fascinating to me the number of people who name their church Journey, something or another. We're not on a journey. We're on a pilgrimage. A journey is a wandering aimlessly somewhere, but we know exactly where we're going. We're going to dwell with the Father in glory. We're going to behold His Son forever, which is exactly the flow of John's argument. The world doesn't know what we are, but Christ knows who we are, and we know who we are in Christ, and we're looking like pilgrims wandering and going eventually to dwell with our Savior. And so when the world rocks our world, we don't look to the world for hope. We look to our King for hope. We look to the end for hope. We look to the expectancy of Christ's return. Verse 28, and we do so living for his pleasure that we would not have to appear before him ashamed. Do you see what John is doing in the text? He's looking all the way back at Genesis 3. And when Adam and Eve sinned, they were before God and they were found, what, naked and ashamed. They were ashamed. But when we're made new in Christ, we can live abiding in him and relying on him and dwelling, on him, dwelling in him and recognizing that though we fall, he is Christ the righteous. And if I cling to him and my faith is in him and my trust is in him, I can look with expectancy to his return, knowing that one day, though I appear before him just as I am, I will stand before him unashamed. We long not only to please him when he comes, we long for the perfection that he brings when he comes. If Verse 2, if your hope is fixed on the future, guess what? You're going to live and plan for that future. People who are born of God have been born into an everlasting family. I don't know about you, but I don't live in a family or I don't come from a family that has a family reunion. But many of you may have a family reunion. And I've met some people who have family reunions, and they always look forward to it. They're going to see the great aunt and the great uncle and sister Sadie, and it's going to be a great time. It's going to be a big old hoot nanny. You all say that, hoot nanny? Here's what John is saying. There's a family reunion that's awaiting us in which we will see the one who's made us a family in the first place. We will see him, Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our friend, our brother, and our King, just as he is. Not as he was in his earthly ministry. Not as he is right now as we see him through the eyes of faith, considering him in the text. But just as he is in his glorified state. And seeing him on that day will be all that's required to complete the purpose of him adopting us and making us his child and birthing us into his family. We will see him as he is and we will become like him. And in verse 3, we see that this hope that we have causes us to want to sanctify ourselves, to purify ourselves. How? By continuing to look at the Christ that we will one day behold. You know, if you're born into a royal family, 
how long does it take them before they start treating you like royalty? And before they start preparing you for the royal life? It happens the moment you're born. There's certain protocols and rituals and ceremonies. And then as you get older, you go to finishing school and you learn how to hold your cup and where you put your fork and your napkin and all this stuff. And you, you don't wait to become the princess in practice way out there, right? You start acting like it and training for it immediately. And this is what John is saying. If you've been adopted as a child of God, then you look to the great end, the wedding feast, where we will behold the Savior face to face, and you start acting like it now. This is the hope that we have, that we've been redeemed by Christ and we will dwell with Christ forever. But look at verse 3 real quickly. Everyone who has this hope, you see the word this? In, in the Greek, it reads like this. Everyone who has the hope, the this one. Everyone who has the hope, the this one. Why, why would John say that? Because the world is full of false hope. It's full of alternative hope and proxy hope and, and hope that is bankrupt. There's only one hope that we have. There's only one hope we have of being a child of the Father as daughter or his daughter or son. And it, isn't, it doesn't belong to any who want to bypass, minimize, redefine who Jesus is. Who we say Jesus is. And the dependency that we confess that we have on this Jesus is the difference in life and death. And it is the sin that we cannot sin. Which brings us to the final point of how it is we live out this new birth, this identity. We have to live consistent with Christ's character and the purposes of Christ's coming. Let me say that again. We have to live consistent with Christ's character and the purposes of Christ's coming. Verse 7 tells us, little children, make sure no one deceives you. It's a command. It's an ongoing command. For the rest of your life, don't let anybody come knocking on your door and distract you from a total, complete reliance upon Christ who was manifest in the flesh to take away your sins. No Jehovah's Witness, no Mormon, no one else. No, let no one deceive you. Like Christ who is pure, verse 3. Like Christ who has no sin, verse 5. And like Christ who is righteous, verse 28 and verse 7. We are to do or to make or to perform righteousness. Which righteousness? Well, according to Romans 10, it's not the righteousness which comes by the law, but it's the righteousness which comes, how? By faith. No one who abides, look, look at what John says here. Because I know what you're thinking. Daniel, I read these verses and it tells me in verse 6, no one who abides in him sins. And then in verse 8, the one who practices sin is of the devil. And then in verse 9, no one born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin. And I don't know about you, but when I read that, I go, John, what are you talking about? Because I still wrestle with the flesh, Romans 7. What about Jesus' instruction to, if a brother sins against a brother, that the one goes to him and confronts him with his sin, hoping for restoration? What about, John, what you just told me in verse 8, that if we say we don't have sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. You told us we're still in this battle and we want to abide in Christ And on the one hand, and now you're telling me I'm, I can't sin. I don't get it, John. Verse 4. 
Everyone who practices sin, literally the sin, also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. This word, this word lawlessness means rebellion. It's a particular sort of sin. It's the sin which Satan has sinned from the beginning. It is the sin of seeking to undermine the work and the glory of Christ. And how is it that we undermine the work and the glory of Christ? We do it in one of two ways. We either say we came to Jesus a long time ago and now it doesn't matter at all how I live. Or we say I can live righteously apart from Christ. Both of those are a sin of rebellion against Christ getting the glory through our lives and in the world. The sin, Colin Cruz tells it this way, the sin which distinguishes children of the devil is the sin of the devil. It is the sin of rebellion. And it is this sin that is impossible for believers to commit. Why? Because God's seed remains in them and they cannot commit it. If you are abiding with Christ, if you belong to Christ, it would make no sense that you could deny the basis by which you were made a child of God in the first place. Does that make sense? You can't say, I'm a child of God, and then say, eh, it doesn't really matter what I do with Jesus. If you're a child of God, your confession is, Christ is everything. He is my identity. He is my strength. He is my source for living for Him, which is what we should do as children of God. We should live consistent with his purposes. Well, why did he come? Look at verse 5. He appeared, why? In order to take away sins. Verse 8, he appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Literally, he was manifest. He came in the flesh for the purpose of putting on his own body our sins and lifting them away. And if that's why he came, we should endeavor to live lives that are empowered by him and not characterized by patterns of sin. And secondly, he appeared in the flesh. Why? To destroy the works of the devil. What does Satan want to do? What does Satan want to do? He wants to undermine the work of Christ the Son, and he wants to steal his glory. And John tells us he's been committing that sin from the beginning. What then should we do if we don't want to commit this sin? We should recognize that we are the work of the Son, and we should seek to share his glory to the ends of the earth. John summarizes his first point and really the entire sermon in verse 10 when he says this by this the children of God and the children of devil are obvious anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God nor the one who does not love his brother he introduces for us at the second half of verse 10 this concept of not loving our brother so if we want to have the assurance that we belong to God as his children first we've got to live like the children of God but second, we must love those who are our siblings. We've got to love the children of God. So North Roanoke, here's the challenge for us. If we truly are the children of God and want to walk in God's assurance, we need to be a church characterized by the self-giving love of Christ for our brothers and sisters. Why? Because it's God's message to us from the beginning. Verse 11. Look at verse 11. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning that we should love 
one another. And then he proceeds to tell us in verse 12 about Cain. Now, why in the world would he proceed to tell us about Cain? Because the message from the very first pages of Scripture is that God made Adam and Eve to then make a family and take dominion and fill the entire world with worshipers. But Cain is of the evil one, and he is opposed to who? To Abel, who by faith offers an offering to God. He hates what Abel does before God, not because of what Abel offers, but because he is accepted before God. What did Abel do that Cain didn't do? Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4 says, By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. The moral difference between Cain's offering and Abel's offering was not the physical items that they brought. It was in the faith that they had. Cain had faith in himself. He had faith that he could do it. He could work out a way. He could figure it out. He could get back to the garden in his own power without the promise of the curse being reversed through the son. But Abel brought his offering, trusting in God's word that he would give his son and that someday through God's son, the curse would be reversed. And here's the bottom line. Some churchgoers spend a lifetime around the things of God, but never really understanding that it's all about Jesus. They come and they contribute, they serve, and somewhere along the way they come to think that they've, they've earned some special recognition or they've contributed something that deserves God's attention. And somewhere along the way their, their focus moves from Jesus to themselves. Like Satan and Cain, they are self-centered and not content with spending eternity worshiping and glorifying God. To this... To this disposition, John says, echoing the words of Christ, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. You see, an ongoing lack of love for the church is an indication of spiritual death. But praise God, John doesn't stop with Cain. He gives us the example of Christ. In verse 16, we learn that we know what love is, how? By what Christ did for us, we learn love through his self-giving example of love. Love is found in extending the favor that God has given to us in Christ to one another. It's not found in a life of greed, but in generosity. It's not found in a life of comparison to one another, but of compassion for one another. Here's the bottom line. For John, it is impossible to be a Christian. It is impossible to be a child of God and not be a giver to the children of God. If the first question that someone asks when they walk in for the first time is, uh, what can you do for me? Please show me your menu of programs so that I can fill up every minute of my week with church activity. What's the fastest track around here to being called a deacon or a Sunday school teacher or having a title in the church? If that's the disposition when we come into the church, what can I take? What can I get? How can I get my name on a placard? How can I get recognition? That sends up red flags for Pastor Daniel. You want to know why? Because the disposition of every child of God is this. Where can I give the most 
Where can I be best spent for the glory of God? Oh, it's cleaning toilets? Great. Where's the brush? That, that's the disposition of the Christian that wants to offer himself for others. And, and let's face it, this application that John gives us is in your face. This isn't Pastor Daniel in your face this morning. This is John the Apostle in your face this morning by the Spirit of God and in my face as well. But his application is pretty clear. Look at verse 18. Love is more than words. It's, it's more than with word or tongue, but it is indeed and in truth. As Scott Kellum writes, words by themselves are empty. True love is expressed in deed and in truth. Love is not lip service. It is labor and liberal generosity motivated by true love for God's family. Lloyd-Jones says this, the more we consider this question of love, the more careful we have to be that we're not just in love with an idea that we utterly fail to put into practice. Let me say that one more time. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, the more we consider this question of love, the more careful we have to be that we're not just in love with an idea that we utterly fail to practice. Love is not sentiment. It isn't warm, fuzzy thoughts. Love does. Love gives. Love hurts so that others don't have to. And love, verse 17, does not shut off the supply of compassion that God pours out for us. Literally, we are not to close off our intestines to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Your translation says, don't turn off your heart or close off your heart. But the word literally is the in insides. When Jesus was walking through the towns and he saw the lame and the hurt and the sick and the tired and the hungry, he, the text tells us he was moved with compassion. Literally, his insides were turning because of what he felt deep on the inside for those who felt pain. And here's what John is saying. If you're a child of God and you see someone in need, and there's needs all throughout this church, by the way. If you see someone in need, don't turn off the wellspring of compassion and love that God is building into your heart. Don't try to shut it off. Let it be completed with the act of giving. Now, some of you are thinking, but how do I know who my brother is? How do I know who my sister is? God has answered that question for us in giving us the local church. We know who our brothers are when they come and say, I want to unite with a church. I want to be baptized. I want to tell the whole church. I want to tell the whole world that I belong to Christ and that I'm here to give my life for his brethren. And I am here to receive the love of Christ from his brethren. And it's a tragedy to know that nearly 50% of those who attend church this morning on a regular basis, nearly 50% of them give zero dollars to the local church in a year's time. Did you know that? True statistic. On average, Southern Baptists give less than 2.5% of their income to the local church in a year's time. 40% of those who give something give less to their local church than they spend on their cell phone plan in a year's time. And we wonder, look what John does with this. Look at verse 21 and 22. This is John, not, not Daniel. This is John. Look what he says in verses 21 and 22. You see what he says? Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. In other words, if you haven't been shutting off the supply of compassion that's welling up in you that has to pour itself out in, in acts of service and giving, 
then we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask from him, because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight, he's going to give us. We receive those things. Guess what? The opposite is also true. If we're a church that closes up on the inside, the moment the Spirit of God is leading us to pour out the liberal generosity of God to others, guess what's going to happen? Our prayers will not be answered. We will not receive from heaven what it is that we ask. And it is John who tells us there's a connection between our love for the brothers and our giving on behalf of the brothers and the prayers that we find are answered by God. The reality is this is a hard truth for us. And John knows it's a hard truth for us. Look what he says in verse 19. We will know by this that we are of the truth and we will assure our heart before him. The word assure there should say persuade. It's very poorly mistranslated to call it assure. Here's what John is saying. When we come to the Lord and we come to our brothers and we get all knotted up on the inside about being generous with one another... Go to God and persuade your heart. And how do you persuade your heart? You look at the cross and what Christ has done for you, and then you follow suit. And we find that in whatever our heart condemns us, we find that God is greater. He has more compassion than we ever dared to dream. He has more love for us than we ever dared to dream. And when we exercise the liberal generosity of God towards one another, God shows up in a mighty way, and we find once again that his love is greater. His love is higher. And his love is stronger than anything we ever dared to hope or imagine. And then John summarizes his teaching with these words in verse 23. This is his commandment. In case we're, there's any remaining confusion. This is his commandment. That we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ. And love one another. Give ourselves for one another. Just as he commanded us. We can be assured that we are children of God when we live like the children of God and when we love the family of God. So I don't know how it is with you this morning, but I will invite you to consider two things. First, maybe you've been sitting here this morning and you've been thinking, I I just needed a reminder of my utter dependency upon Christ for everything. I needed that new hymn that said, all I have is Christ. And maybe you want to come this morning and say to God the Father, God, give me a holy love and fervor and passion for Christ that exceeds all other loves and passions. And secondly, some of you may need to come this morning and say, I need to persuade my heart. I need to do verse 19. I need... I need to see my brother and sister in need and I need to see them like Jesus sees them and I need to not shut up the wellspring of compassion in my soul and in my gut and I need to become liberally generous with my life for the sake of the brothers and sisters. If that is your prayer this morning, we invite you to come and do business with God. And finally, if you're here and you moved here from Elkin, West Virginia or Tucson, Arizona and you've been looking for a church home, This is the kind of church we want to be at North Roanoke. We want to dive deep into the scriptures. We want to explain what God has said. And we want to worship him in spirit and truth Sunday after Sunday after Sunday so we can come and give and praise together the God who made us his children. We invite you to come and partner with North Roanoke in taking his gospel to the ends of the earth. Would you pray with me? God, we love you.
God in a crowd this size, in a congregation this big, there's no doubt some who have trusted in their own righteousness and not in the shed blood of Jesus. They've not placed their faith entirely in what Christ has done on their behalf and they, they still need to receive the grace of God and become your child. We pray, God, that you would move and that you would draw men and women to yourself. For others, God, we, we confess that when we read this text, we are confronted. We are confronted afresh with our tendency to cater to our flesh and our preferences and not to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. God, we ask for your grace and strength to become a church that is defined as those who give like Jesus gave so that our brothers will know the love of God and ultimately so the world will know the love of God. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.